sometimes the obvious thing is the hardest thing to admit. Like a nail in your head. George Orwell made a statement that we have now sunk to a depth at which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. Today, we will restate the obvious. Today, we will address the nail one way or the other. If you would stand with us, we're going to read the scripture together. I promise it's the last time I'll make you stand till the end of the passage, which is at the end of our time together. So please stand. We're going to read the scripture together. We're reading Romans 7, 14 through 25. And we stand out of respect of the God of the Word and the Word of God. So, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let me pray. God, we believe that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe and we confess that your word is true, and just like we sang, we say amen to that, so be it. God, help us by the power of your spirit to behold wondrous things from your word, so that we might be transformed and made more like Jesus as a result of coming into contact with you through your word by the power of your spirit. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm telling you, I would love to take that paragraph and spend a weekend in it. But we have spent now, this is our fourth weekend in this passage, and... We are tarrying here on purpose. This is so big, so important to the rest of the book of Romans. If we don't get this, we miss the rest of the book. And what's about to come in Romans 8 is some of the most precious, amazing, abundant promises in all of Scripture. The Puritans called it the Great Eight, talking about Romans 8. And it is the high peak, the highest peak of Mount Everest in Scripture, I believe. So, I say all that to say, if we miss this, we don't get the peak. We miss it. We miss the the enormity of it. So, let me quickly review where we've been in our trek through Romans. The theme of Romans is how to be right with God. Chapter 1, 1 through 320 showed us sin, the need for being right with God. Who has a need for being right with God? Everybody. Everybody outside of Jesus Christ who was born of a woman was born with sin and the wrath of God abides upon them. And let me be clear too, what are we saved from when we're saved? We're saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming upon all the sons of disobedience and salvation is being delivered from that wrath into His love, into His grace. So everybody, every single person ever born outside of Jesus Christ is born with sin and has a need for being made right with God. Then starting in 321 through 425, we saw that there is a means for being made right with God, and that means is justification by faith alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And there's no other way. You don't work harder, try harder, do better, bite your lip. There's no other way to be made right with God 
than justification by faith. After we're justified, we start to see blessings, the results of being made right with God. And that'll take us through the end of chapter 8, and we are at the end of chapter 7 today, and then we'll get into points 4, 5, and 6 somewhere up the road. But that's where we've been so far. As we've gone through that, we have looked at Asian Station, and I know some of you are sitting here going, he's going to do it again, he's going to go through this again. Yes, yes he is. Expiation is God taking the guilt of our sin away from us. Propitiation is a dual meaning word. Jesus Christ became our propitiation and He propitiated God. That word propitiation means the diverting of, the satisfying of wrath. I just said the wrath of God abides upon the sons of disobedience. In propitiation, Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins, took that penalty upon Himself, and God vented the full wrath of His anger upon the person of Christ. He punished Jesus for our sins. And He propitiated Himself and He propitiated us so that now God has no wrath left for His children. It's been spent. It's been completely accomplished. Jesus hung there and He said, It is finished. And what He meant was, I have absorbed the wrath of God for the children of God so that there's no more wrath left for the children of God. That's propitiation. God pouring the wrath for our sin upon the person of Christ. Then we see imputation. He took our guilt away. He punished Jesus for our sins. And then He gave us, through imputation, the very righteousness of Christ. We could not be any cleaner than we are in the sight of God because we have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us. That's imputation, which puts us in a state, a legal state of justification. The gavel swung, not guilty, is the verdict now. That's, the, that's justification. I have the right to stand in God's presence because I am righteous by decree of the righteous judge who poured his wrath out upon the person of Christ. So I'm justified. After we are justified, we begin the process of sanctification, which is where we progressively become more and more like Jesus. I'll say it every time I go through this. Sanctification is not the process of you earning your salvation. Sanctification is not the process of you making God happier with you because you're acting better or doing better. Sanctification is working out what God has worked into us. Justification is a legal declaration. Gavel swung, not guilty. Sanctification is, okay, now let's start to put it into action. And it's a progressive act. Which leads us to salvation. Before the foundation of the earth, we were saved. At one point in time, we were saved. Right now, we are being saved. And one day, completely up ahead, eternity will weep no more. We'll be completely and finally saved. Asian Station. Expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, sanctification, salvation. When we get closer to the end of Romans 8, we're going to add a nation. Sneak peek, it's glorification. So, but that's Asian station. This all revolves around our union with Christ. And when I say union with Christ, I mean we have been made one with Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. One with Christ, union with Christ. We are in Christ is what the New Testament says over and over and over again to the point that His experience is our experience. His past experience was our experience. His future experience will be our experience. We have been crucified with Him. We will be raised with Him. Why? So that we might walk in newness of life now. Past effects, future effects, so that it has present effects. That's our union with Christ which is just monstrous. Hmm. Let me set the stage for Romans 7 today as we recap Romans 4 through 7. You're like, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding. Listen. In chapter 4, we saw that we are justified by faith as a gift of God's grace. Chapter 5, we saw that we have peace with God now that we've been justified. Chapter 6, we saw that we have freedom from sin because we died to sin. At the beginning of chapter 7, we see that we have died to the law. And in chapter 8, well, just trust me, chapter 8 is going to be set your hair on fire and run your, around the room crazy good. That's how good it's going to be. Okay, that's what happened to me. 
It was a second act of grace that I'm bald. So <clears throat> there is no second act of grace, by the way. Let me. No, anyway. So you got all this good stuff here: Romans four, Romans five, Romans six, Romans seven, Romans eight is oh. But what I said last week was, it seems like fourteen through twenty-five of chapter seven is kind of like everything's going great, 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 getting better, getting better. Whoa, I really stink. Everything's going great. So 14 through 25 is just kind of hard to reckon in all of this, which is why we spent so long trying to figure out what it means. Three weeks ago, we determined that we, through interpretation, through looking at two sides of the argument, some people say that Romans 7, 14 through 25 is written about Paul's pre-conversion experience. There's another camp that says this is Paul as a mature apostle of Christ saying this is my experience now. We came down through biblical interpretation, not just on a spur of the moment thing. We came down that Paul is speaking of himself as he is as he writes this letter. That 7, 14 through 25 is speaking of Paul the apostle, the mature believer who cries out, O wretched man that I am. Not that he was wretched man and then he got delivered, we came down three weeks ago that this is talking about Christian experience. That's important. Two weeks ago, we said we have to own our sin, we have to disown our sin, and then we have to understand that the new I, the letter I, the new I, is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. And then last week, uh, you, if you were here, you might remember we talked about Louis Zamperini being a POW, and, here, and how Paul cried out, wretched man that I am, which meant that he was tormented, that he was afflicted, and he was literally acting like a POW because he said that sin holds him captive sometime. But then he said, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, He will deliver me, will deliver me from this body of death. And then I read last week, last piece of review that we'll go over this week too, and I'm going to reread a quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones regarding this passage. So I read it two weeks ago, I read it last week, and I'm going to read it again this week because it's that important. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The theme of this volume, 7, 14-25, is no mere fascinating theological or intellectual problem, but one of vital importance to Christian experience and to the health, well-being, and vigor of the church. And then he ends with this, to end a reading of Romans 7 in a depressed condition is to fail to understand it. To end a reading of Romans 7 in a depressed condition is to fail to understand it. So we're going to look at what I want to do today. And God have mercy on us all. I'm going to try to recap all of chapter 7 to set the context for the last sentence in verse 25. Okay? And I believe it's important that that happens so that we can see why is he saying this at this point. Because I believe, if you think about Romans 7, it's been 12 weeks that we've spent in Romans 7 or close to it. That's a long time ago. What, what were you doing 12 weeks ago? What did you eat for dinner 12 weeks ago? I don't know. Probably pizza. I ate a lot of pizza. But we've got to rethink about what's going on here in Romans 7. So let me try to run through it. If you'll remember, and if you've got a Bible, it'd be good to open up your Bible to Romans 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in a box back here on this table. And those standard English standard versions that we have with the blue binding, Romans 7's on page 943. I wrote that on my hand so that I would remember. Uh, there's some in that box too. Will. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, it would be good to have one. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. Because um, it's going to be good to, to, to have it in front of you. I'll put up everything that I can up here, but you just can't put everything up here. And then I'm fumbling and trying to deal with it. So Okay, so chapter 7 started with the Holy Spirit saying through Paul that a woman is bound to her husband as long as the two of them are alive if they're married, okay? Of course, if she's got a husband, they would be married, wouldn't they? But if one of them dies, then the other, and in our case, the woman, 
in Romans 7, is free to marry another. In this analogy, he says, we are the ones who died. And our death was a co-death with Christ. We were crucified with Christ when He died. We talked about that a second ago. So our death ended our marriage to who? According to Romans 7, it ended our marriage to the law, God's law. And why did we die to the law? Romans 7, 4 tells us why we died to the law. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that, there's a conclusion statement, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that, another conclusion statement, we may bear fruit for God. That's Romans 7, 4. We died to the law so that we might be joined to, so that we may belong to, so that we, we may be wed to another. And who are we to belong to? To him who has been raised from the dead, which is who? Christ himself. Which We talked about our union with Christ. That's exactly what this is talking about. And why do we need to belong to Christ? He says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we died to the law because we can't bear fruit to God by keeping the law. It's impossible. We'll talk about a little bit more of that in a second. The law was and the law is unable to save us. The law was and the law is unable to sanctify us. That wasn't the purpose of the law. We saw way back when that the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ, to get us to Christ, to lead us to the one who could save us, to lead us to the one who could sanctify us. And what this is saying here is we had to die of the law. That marriage had to end. And the only way for that to legitimately end is for there to be a death. Well, the law didn't die. We died in Christ, so that marriage bond was broken. And now we're free to be wed to another, which is Christ. And we are joined to Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God. I'm telling you, this chapter is monstrous. Monstrous. It's very important that we understand that the point of the Christian life is to bear fruit for God. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the fruit that you bear. When you bear much fruit, that glorifies my Father. We talked about that several weeks ago. Our sinful passions were actually aroused by the law, according to verse 5, if you're following along there, and then in verse 6, which I'll put up here. Why didn't you put verse 5 up there? Well, I didn't. Romans 7, 6 says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We just talked about that. So that, conclusion statement, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, capital S, and not in the old way of the written code. Boy, that is a huge verse. Here it says we were released from that were dead to the law which held us captive. And why? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that is monstrous. So when you combine verse 4 and verse 6, we see that we belong to Christ, we are in union with Him, and we now serve in the new way of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We are wed to Christ, serving in the power of the Holy Spirit of God Himself so that the fruit we bear, we bear fruit for God, we bear fruit by God. And then in the next section of chapter 7, Paul defends the law, explaining that it wasn't the law's fault that I couldn't be saved or sanctified by it. It was sin that was the problem. Sin was the nail. Sin, according to verses 8 and 11, used the law to bring death to me. I put those up here too. Verse 8 says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Then verse 11 says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, through the law, killed me. Now who did that? What did that? For three-letter word rhymes with kin. Sin. It's sin that did these things. So sin was the problem, and in order to see sin as sinful beyond measure, according to verse 13, 
sin used even the good godly law to deceive and kill me. Let's look at verse 13. Did that which is good then, talking about the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So God wanted us to see the sinfulness of sin. And so He let sin use the good godly law to deceive us and to kill us. So sin is bad. The nail, sin, is bad. And we have to see that it is sinful beyond measure. So that was verse 13. Sin used even the good godly law to deceive and kill me and to deceive and kill us. Which brings us to 14, which is our section 14 to 25, where we've been for four weeks now. And in this passage, which we've said we're looking at from a believer's point of view, meaning that Paul is speaking of his post-conversion experience and describing what is going on in his life as he writes these words, and as such is speaking of normal, I would say even mature Christian experience. Starting in verse 14, we see a problem in that we are dealing with a spiritual law, talking about the law of God, but we're also dealing with a flesh that is sold under sin, which leads Paul to say that he doesn't understand his own actions. He doesn't do what he wants to do, but he actually does what he hates. And as such, he sees the reality of the new eye, me, the new eye. I've got a new eye, not, not my visual gate, me the person, the letter I. He sees the reality of the new I, and that new I agrees that the law is good. This new I is not the part of him committing these sins, but it is actually sin in him that dwells in him that is committing these sins. Look at verses 18 through 20. I don't have that up here, I don't think. Make sure. I don't want to tell you wrong. I don't. I went back into 14. In your Bibles, look at verses 18 through 20. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now the big takeaway there is that Paul is saying that sin dwells in him. The Apostle Paul, born again, appointed by Christ himself to be an apostle, says that sin dwells in him, in his flesh. Which means that as a born again believer, I, me, Jason, I have sin dwelling in my flesh too. I've got a nail in my forehead. which could be really depressing news. But it's not. Stay with me. Paul even goes as far as to say that nothing good dwells in his flesh. And we we define flesh as the animalish instincts in us, the sensuous desires that we feel. In this flesh there is nothing good. Only sin lives there. And what I want you to remember is flesh does not equal body. We're not saying your body is all bad because we are to present our bodies to God as as our spiritual service of worship, which is something we'll look at when we come to Romans 12 way up the road somewhere. And we'll actually touch it in our application section today. So don't confuse body and flesh. Flesh is in your body, but flesh isn't your body. I know that's crazy and that sounds confusing. It makes sense though? With me? Flesh is in your body, but your body's not your flesh. So please do not make the mistake of saying, well, this body is just all bad and there's nothing I can do about it. That's a false assumption. That's not biblical. We are to present our body. We'll get to that when we get to the end. So, then we saw last week that there is a law present, according to verse 21, that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. And I'd say it does since it dwells in our flesh, right? The new eye delights in the law of God. But there is another law, another principle waging war, making me a POW, a prisoner of war. And that law that makes me a prisoner is sin. 
And it comes to a crescendo in verses 24 and 25. Now, I'm pretty sure I do have that up here because that's pretty important because we're going to spend a lot of time there. Sorry for my... There we go. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now we saw last week that wretched means afflicted, tormented. It does not mean bad, wrong, or disgusting, which is what I've always taken it as. I'm just a wretch. I'm so disgusting. I'm so bad. I'm so wrong. That's not what it means. Paul's not saying I'm a jerk, I'm an idiot, God can't be happy with me. He's saying I'm afflicted because I want to do the law of God, but there's a law that's present in me that takes me captive and makes me do what I don't want to do. Wretched man, tortured, oppressed, prisoner man that I am. So he's not calling himself, don't, we'll get to this in the end, don't beat yourself up over sin, confess your sin. That's kind of the point of all this. As a captive to the law of sin, as a POW in this war, we are wretched, we are afflicted, we are tortured as sin wages its war against us. Who will deliver us from this body of death? And the main point of last week was that our rallying cry as believers, our hope, our joy is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, church, listen, Christian. God will deliver us from sin. God will win the victory in us and through us in this war that we're in that sin is waging against us. And He will do it through Jesus Christ our Lord. And man, that'd be great if verse 25 ended there, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. Just when you think, okay, whoo, relief. Look at the end of verse 25, so then. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Yes, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That makes me want to cuss. Seriously. I want to say a bad word about that right there. Why couldn't he just cut that off and just stop with Jesus Christ our Lord and we high-five each other and we walk out the door and we're like, Yes, Jesus! But he doesn't do that. So what we're going to do is spend the rest of our time on from so then to sin. And it's actually pretty good news. So stay with me. Look at this sentence in light of what we've all just re-looked at. So then. Now let me ask you a question. Why would you use the phrase so then in a thought? If you were talking, why would you say so then... Yeah, you're going to clarify something. You're going to sum it up. After all that I've said in chapter 7, this is the result. So then, after all that, after all that, married to sin, or married to the law, dead to the law, joined to Christ so that we might walk in newness of life, wretched man that I am, after all of that, here's the purpose. So then, here's how we're going to sum it all up. So then. It's bringing all this to a close, to a conclusion. There's the law of God, a law of sin, a born-again man who is torn between them, fighting a war where he agrees that God's law is good and the law of sin is bad. His new eye really, really wants to do God's will, but sin lives in his flesh and wages war against his efforts to do so. And the conclusion is, so then, I myself, the new eye, serve the law of God. And this is said to be done how or, or where? Where does he serve the law of God? With my mind. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, which I thought was weird. In his inner person. Anybody ever talk to themselves? Yeah, well, sure. Okay, I want everybody to do me a favor here. Don't say anything but I want you to think green monkey. Think the words green monkey. Where's the green monkey? Anybody see it? Can you see it in here? 
men are visual thinkers. Men actually probably saw a green monkey in their head, more than likely. <laughs> Steve saw one. <laughs> Brother, we need to talk. Who will deliver you from this Vicodin? Um, so if, if you see something in your mind, if you're holding on to something, it's there, but it's not there. And what he's saying is, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, in here, internally. The inner me serves the law of God. But, and yes, this is a big but, with his flesh, where there is nothing good, where sin lives, what does he do? He serves the law of sin. Now grab a hold of that. Inside, he serves the law of God. In his mind, he agrees with, he yields obedience to the law of God. But with his sensuous, instinctive flesh, he serves the law of sin. And this would explain why he's doing the very thing that he hates. Why he doesn't understand what he does, what he does. He is constantly fighting a war. And at times, he is taken captive by the sin that dwells in his flesh which makes him captive to the law of sin. This is all just recapping what he's already said. Do you see the struggle? Do you see the war? Now the obvious question is, what does this mean for us? Who cares about Paul, really? I mean, really, in the everyday scheme of things, I don't care what Paul dealt with. I want to know what it means for me. How does this affect me getting up in the morning and deciding which food to eat and deciding to be honorable or dishonorable at my job, to stay faithful to my wife. How does all of this affect me? If this was Paul's experience, is it ours? And I would say wholeheartedly, yes. Yes, it is. But let me say first off, and I wrestled with this, just because we struggle with sin doesn't make it all right to sin. And just because our experience may agree with Paul's, that doesn't mean that the Bible has to bend to agree with your experience. Because we make we live in a culture that is saying, yeah, but we're enlightened now. We're smarter now than they were then. So now that our experience is different than theirs, we don't have to hold the same standard that they held. Wrong. There is one standard. It is holiness. It is Christ Himself that is the standard. So for us to say, well, yeah, I'm going to struggle with sin, so God's okay with that. God's not okay with that. God understands that and God has forgiven us completely, but it's not okay to say, well, I'm just going to be a POW the rest of my life. It's not okay. And don't expect God to say, man, it's fine, I understand. That's not the point here. And it's very important. What I mean by that, it's not okay to say this is my normal experience so I need to find a Bible passage that makes it okay to be that way. I will reiterate something I've said a couple of times this morning and over the last few weeks. Sin is not okay. Sinning is bad and wrong and offends God and His glory first and foremost. So do not, do not use this passage to excuse yourself from fighting against and killing sin in your life. The normal, mature Christian life surely includes sin dwelling in our flesh, warring against us, taking us captive from time to time, but that war should be joined by us to the point that our defeats are getting further and further apart. So this passage is not saying, oh well, I'm going to keep on sinning because sin dwells in my flesh. And why not? Well, that takes us back to chapter 6 again like we said last week. In chapter 6, we saw that we died to sin. I'm not going to recap all of chapter 6, so don't, don't tune out on me. But in chapter 6, we saw that we died to sin. So what in the heck are we to think here? Sin lives in our flesh, but we died to sin. So if we're dead to sin, we shouldn't sin, right? But Paul is saying that he serves the law of sin with his flesh. So is he dead to sin or ain't he? These are the questions that should be popping up in your heads and your hearts as we go through this stuff. 
which again should have you asking the same questions about you and your Christian life. Listen, let me ask you, does sin live in your flesh? Yes, it does, according to Scripture. Is sin waging war against you? Again, the answer is affirmative, yes. Now, are you dead to sin? Yes, you are, according to Scripture. So, do you ever sin after conversion? Yes, you do. And I'm serious. Now listen, things like this can tempt me to throw up my hands and say, I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. The Bible is circular reasoning. I can't deal with it. I'm dead to sin, but it's, but sin lives in my flesh. I, it's understood that I'm going to sin after I'm converted, but it's not okay to sin after I'm converted. What in the world? What in the heck? Wretched man that I am. Let me see if I can help you. Not live in a point of frustration. That's my goal this morning. The frustration of, I don't know what this means. I don't know what the reality is because I see something with my own eyes, but I feel something else in my own head. Boy, it sounds like what Paul's saying, right? In my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. The Bible in general and the New Testament specifically, can speak in ways that seem contradictory. But I want to show you some passages that might help us understand how this works. And I owe this section to John Piper. He brought this out in one of his messages. Um, and I can commend that. I'll, I'll post that message on the Facebook page so that you can hear the full thing. But he says that Paul, over and over, says to become what you are. Get a hold of that phrase. Let me show you what he means. Piper says this, the way he does this, the way that he tells you to become what you are, is with a strong statement of fact that Christians are new, accompanied by an equally strong command to become new. Did you get that? So the New Testament says you are new, and then the New Testament will also say become new. I'm going to show you some examples. And this is so powerful. I think it's powerful. You may say, well, that's stupid. I'm okay with that. Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So will sin have any dominion over you? No. Okay. Well, then why would he say in 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin will have no reign over you. Don't let sin reign over you. Why would Paul do that? We're not done. Romans 6.18, And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. And then he says, in 6.19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now wait a minute, back up. You have become slaves of righteousness. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. So which is it? Am I or do I have to do it? Stay with me. Romans 6.6 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Praise God. 6.11 So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So was I crucified with Him? But do I have to consider myself dead to sin? Okay, building a case. Stay with me. Colossians 3.9 Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Ephesians 4.22 Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, did you see that? Different books. You have put off the old self. Put off your old self. What if we talked like this in everyday life? I am at work. I'm going to work. My wife would go, did you get enough sleep? Because what's going on here? I'm not done. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, there was, we have put on the new self, 
And here it's saying put on the new self. What the heck? Heck's the word of the day, by the way, because I can't cuss. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Seriously, is that not maddening? Does that not drive you crazy? Because it drives me crazy. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Back here, you said that we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And here you're saying make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, if you were an outsider to the faith, you would look at that and say, well, that's just nuts. That's stupid. It's like sitting down at a table and having food in your mouth saying, I'm going to eat. I am eating. I'm going to eat. But are both true? Mm -hmm. Now, there's one verse in 1 Corinthians that says it in the same passage and actually says it backwards. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Cleanse out the old leaven as you really are unleavened. Now, am I unleavened? Or do I have to cleanse out the old leaven? Yes! Now, let me ask you a question. You know what? I lied to you earlier. Everybody stand up. We're not done. Stand up. Do this number here. Okay, shake your head. Okay, sit down. I'm asking you to think. I'm asking you to be alert here. And I know it's easy to sit there and say, he's talking so much. He's not making any sense. I get it. But I'm asking you through all of this, do you see the pattern? Sin shall not be master over you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You became slaves of righteousness. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Our old self was crucified with Him. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You laid aside the old self. Lay aside the old self. You have put on the new self. Put on the new self. You have clothed yourself with Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Clean out the old leaven just as you are in fact unleavened. Now, are we dead to sin? Yes, we are. Does sin dwell in our flesh? Yes, it does. We destroy, please listen to me, we destroy any chance we have of progressing in our faith and maturity when we fail to or refuse to address the plain and simple fact that we have sin living in our flesh. It is about the nail. That's the point. And there are groups out there that would say, you're not a sinner anymore. There are groups out there that would say, you're never going to sin again once you're born again. You're in a higher plane now. There are groups out there that say, once you have a second experience, you're above sin, you're past sin. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. You have sin living in your flesh, believer. And if you fail to address it, you will never progress in your maturity. You're going to lie to yourself. Well, I didn't really sin. I just kind of messed up. No, you didn't. You sinned. That bad thought, that poor choice of words, that wrong finger you stuck up on the road, that is sin. What an accident. It's about the nail. I went through a phase where I refused to be called a sinner. My wife can testify to this. If someone mentioned sin or called me a sinner, I would quickly retort, the Bible says I'm a saint. Don't you call me a sinner. And boy, was I annoying. More annoying than I am now, if that's possible. And you know what? That was true. At least the part about the Bible identifying me as a saint was true. But the Bible also says I have sinned dwelling in my flesh. 
And it says that I serve the law of sin with my flesh. And like we just looked at with the become what you are passages, we are not fully what we are pronounced to be. It's the already but not yet tension that we live in. Let's just let the Bible define for us what we truly are. Let's let the Bible say, you have sin in your flesh. And like verse 25 of Romans 7 says, you serve the law of God with your mind, but with your flesh you serve the law of sin. It is both and. No, we're going to have to reach way back here, I think. I'll come back. Remember this statement? Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, that means at the same time justified and a sinner. That's the Christian experience. I am justified. I have the very righteousness of Christ given to me as a gift of God the Father. And man, I roll around in the muck and mire of sin every second day. I want to, but I do. Now, does that make me any less justified? Thank God, no. Thank God, no. I am at the same time justified and a sinner. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Sin is waging war against the new eye. And it's time for the new eye to stand up and say, I see you as sin and I am going to engage you in full-fledged battle. I will lose some battles, but I will not lose this war. I cannot lose this war. Christ is the victor and I am in Him. I am one with Him. I belong to Him. He belongs to me. I am wed to Him and He will never divorce me. Anybody grow up with the fear that maybe it's just sinned too many times and God's going to say, I'm done with you, I'm finished with you? It cannot happen. He cannot deny Himself, is what Scripture says. And I am placed in Him by the burning passion of Jesus Christ Himself. His body, His blood, given for me. Something happened to me when I was going through that phase Man, I just, I mean, I got the point, I wasn't confessing sin. There was no need for it. I was perfected. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm great. God loves me perfectly, which is true. But I did have sin in my life. We went to, together for the gospel, and John Piper preached a message talking about the publican and the Pharisee who were praying. And the Pharisee stood and said, I thank you, God, that I am me, that I'm really good. I tithe down to the mint dill and cumin down to the smallest spice. I do good stuff. I'm a really good guy. And I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector who's down there beating his breast, who's a disgusting creature. I thank you that I'm not like him. And that tax collector said it sat and he beat his breast. And he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one went away justified? Was it the guy who said, I thank you that I'm not like this jerk down here? Or was it the guy who said, man, I'm a wretch, I'm a sinner. God, please have mercy on me. Piper preached on that message. And it was like I literally wanted to jump out of my seat and say, I'm a sinner! I'm a sinner! I'm a, I'm a sinner! Yes! I, you, it's funny, that's really how I felt. I was on cloud nine because I realized that I am a saint and I am a sinner. So all this tension of trying to hide what I was doing, all this tension of trying to convince people that I was on a higher plane, man, it fell away like chains. And I'm like, I am a sinner. And I am completely accepted by, I am completely loved by a holy God who has called me a saint. And it was freedom. It was freedom. I'm a sinner. Praise God. I'm a sinner. It's both and. At the same time, justified and a sinner. 
And listen, church, please hear me say this. That will be true until we see Jesus face to face. And that's the way God designed it, which makes it really good news. Why is that good news? Let's move to our application points. And I've actually got four this morning. First application point is just what John Piper said. Become who you are. First and foremost, know who you are in Christ. Know that you are dead to sin. Know that you have put on Christ. Know that the old way of doing things has passed away. But also know that it is a progressive realization that gets us to that point. I am proclaimed righteous and I am increasingly becoming more righteous on this path. That's good news. That's sanctification. You know why that's good news? Because it pushes us to Jesus. And we, say, we don't say, thanks be to God that I'm going to work this out and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to do better. We say, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm running to Jesus with every sin that pops in my head. God, I just thought a very covetous thought. That's sin. I see it as sin. I confess it as sin. And you are faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So let's move on. There's not a penalty box that I could go over and sit in and say, well, God's mad at me right now. I'll wait till He's not mad, then I'll pray again or I'll read my Bible again. Confession, realize that you're forgiven. So become who you are. Know who you are and know that that is a progressive work of God. That's our first application point. Now, how do we do that? Where is it that Paul said he served the law of God? Where did you think of the green monkey? In your mind. Now, how do we become who we are? Two things you can do in this application point. First, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, not your flesh, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now the next verse says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if I'm going to present my body out of verse 1, I've got to be renewed in my mind. If I'm going to do it, I've got to know it and believe it. I've got to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. So how do I become what I am? I have my mind renewed. Now, what does that look like? It's reading the Bible. It's meditation. It's praying. It's uh, memorization. It's getting the Word of God into you so that it becomes like a waterfall that's just washing you out from all the junk of the world. Because listen, you are constantly being bombarded by the stimulus of the world and the sin in your flesh is crying out, yes, we want that! But the Word of God says, no, you don't. There's something better. No, you don't. There's something better. Don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to sin. Sin is a liar. Sin is waging war against you and your flesh. Say no to sin. Say yes to Jesus. Because the Scripture tells us to. So you're transformed on the outside by what happens on the inside. So immerse yourself in the Word of God. Surround yourself with godly people. Now you're going to be around sinners. That's the way God's designed it too. You can't just isolate yourself and insulate yourself from the world. But man, I'm telling you what, you better fill yourself up with the Word of God. And that helps you to do this. I love this. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So you've got sin living in your flesh. What should you do to it? Discipline it. You say, heck no, sin. Mm-mm. Not today. Not today. I'm on my A game. I read this morning that there is a law that is active in me that is the very life of Christ and He is stronger than you, He is better than you, and I am not walking that way. I'm going to deny my body that physical pleasure that you're calling out, that's telling me that I want. I'm going to say no to it. Because I can. I'm going to bring my body under control. Your body is a fantastic slave and an awful master. 
So as you get that Word of God in you, you start to say, hey, wait a second, I can tell my body no by the power of God Himself. Now some versions of the Scripture here say that I buffet my body. Now those of you that are reading impaired, it does not say I buffet my body. Okay, It's not talking about a buffet. It's not Jimmy Buffett. It's I buffet my body. I make it my slave. Make your body your slave. So that was the second application point. It was two things. The first one was become what you are. The second application point was renew your mind and discipline your body. This is how Christ is formed in us. This is the battle that we fight in the power of the Spirit. So become who you are. Renew your mind and discipline your body. Third, and this is so important, do not fall into the trap of perfectionism. Because let me tell you what perfectionism does. It leads you down one of two paths. It leads you down the pharisaical path, which is pride, which is I'm not like that jerk down there beating his breast. Or it leads you to despair, which says I'm never going to get there, so why even try? Don't fall into that trap. There are two laws at work in you. The law of God in your mind and the law of sin in your flesh, and they are at war with each other. Do not fall into the trap of I've got to be perfect or God's not going to love me. It will lead you to despair or pride. It will either lead you to legalism, trying to keep the law in your own power, or it will lead you to lawlessness because you say, well, I just can't do it. What's he trying? Don't fall into that trap. There are two laws that work with you. So, become who you are. Renew your mind. Discipline your body. Don't fall into the perfection trap. And finally, please, if you get nothing else out of this message today, and I know there's a lot in here. I'm not going to apologize for that. If you get nothing else, please listen to me. Christians, believers, I'm speaking to you right now. Be real with yourself. Be real with each other. Lose your mask. Who in here has sin dwelling in their flesh? Everybody raise your hand. Because you do. What if your sin is gluttony? What if your sin is lust? What if your sin is pride? What if your sin is homosexual desire? What if your sin is something that you would think people would not want to hear that? Listen, I've got sin living in me. You've got sin living in you. Let's bring it out in the open. And let's quit judging other people and thinking, well, I've never sinned that way. Now, I'd eat a dozen donuts because gluttony is my thing, but lose the mask. There's a nail in your head too. And you know what that does? That makes it real easy to be real about who I am. And it makes it very easy to be gracious to others because they've got a nail in their head too. So am I going to look down at you and say, you've got a nail in your head. You're disgusting. You're going to look at me and say, uh, there's one in your head too. No, nah, there's no. It's not about the nail it is about the nail and we've all got one and that nail is sin in our flesh so I can be gracious to you when you come up and say you know what I'm really struggling with this sin and I can be real open and honest with you and say you know what this is the one that I'm really dealing with right now and please hear me say this too there are besetting sins that you might literally fight your entire life and never be delivered from Paul said he asked three times, and this wasn't about sin, it was about a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was. Was it physical? Was it mental, emotional, spiritual, financial? I don't know what it was. But he said he entreated God three times that it would be removed from him. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in perfection. My power is perfected in weakness. My power, God says, is perfected when I come and say, I've got a big old nail in my head. It hurts. And I'm going to wrestle with this all my life. God, would you take it out? No. I want you to fight it your whole life. And doggone it, when I cross the finish line in glory, I'm going to take it out. And I'm going to say, thank you.
and I'm going to worship you for eternity for finally fully delivering me from me. For finally and fully delivering me from the sin that dwells in my flesh. But until that time, I am going to fight. With everything God has for me, I'm going to fight. And I'm going to be open and honest. I'm going to confess my sins to you, to God, to myself. And I'm going to be gracious to you when you come and say, this is really what I'm struggling with. I'm like, brother, let's pray about it. Let's search the scriptures and see what God has to say about that. Become who you are. Renew your mind. Discipline your body. Don't fall into the perfection trap. And please, be real with yourself and be real with each other. There is sin living in your flesh. Christians, let's fight until we die together. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love the fact that this passage ends with, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now let me finish with a sneak preview of the next verse in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me read that in context together. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even as I serve the law of sin with my flesh. No condemnation. The gospel is really good news.